There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends, but who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic main campus here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're back here with Dr. Christine Lee. Dr. Lee is a gastroenterologist at Cleveland Clinic Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. And before we begin, please remember this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. So, Dr. Lee, the last time we spoke, we did a podcast about lower GI issues. We talked about things from rectal bleeding, constipation, and so on. And for our viewers and listeners, if you would like to uh, hear those and more, you can go to ccf.org slash hepodcast to find that podcast and more. But today, we're focused on upper GI issues, right? So, the GI tract consists of everything from mouth all the way down to the anus. That's right. Tell me what is considered an upper GI. So as you said, um, GI tract encompasses from mouth to anus. So the lower GI is what we talked about last time, and that's basically um, the large colon um, down. Mm -hmm. For the upper, it's from mouth to the second part of the small uh, duodenum, what we call uh, where the ligamentum of trites lay. That's the geographic zip code or, or state line that separates the upper from the lower. So the um, upper track is anything above that. So it's above from the second portion of the duodenum to the stomach, to the esophagus, to the mouth. Okay, great. So I'd like to identify some common upper GI problems people may be living with, and then I'll ask you some questions regarding each disease. Sure. Um, I want to start with reflux versus GERD, because sometimes I feel we hear both kind of going together. And uh, is GERD the same thing as reflux? So GERD is a gastroesophageal reflux disease, and it encompasses, uh, it's a broader terminology. So GERD may or may not have regurgitation component to Mm. it. So GERD just means whether it's acid itself or acid vapor coming above, out of the stomach and above the gas, the door that separates the esophagus and the stomach. So acid in the stomach is fine. You know, acid is produced in the stomach, it's Mm -hmm. stored in the stomach, and it's supposed to work in the stomach. When acid is either produced too much or um, it's produced in normal production, but you have it coming up out of the stomach into the esophagus, that is under the classification of GERD um, or heartburn. Um, regurgitation is when you actually have consumed food and the food's being digested in the stomach, um, but the food content itself comes all the way back up to the esophagus. That's the regurgitation okay. uh, component. So you can have GERD with or without the regurgitation component. Okay, so I want to talk about obvious symptoms and not so obvious symptoms of GERD. First of all, obvious symptoms. Obvious symptom would be the classic heartburn. You know, you ate your um, your large meal, whether it's cheeseburger and fries and a Coke, and then 10, 15 minutes later, you feel a lot of burning, mm-hmm. um, 
pressure. The esophagus. Yeah, yeah, and then you feel like acid coming up. And they classically describe it as it's coming up. They usually point to their chest, mm -hmm. and it may come all the way up to the throat. That would be the obvious symptoms of heartburn, and it usually happens after a large meal or a spicy meal. You, most people know their triggers, um, and it, that's what is most common and most uh, frequently described. Okay. Um, not so common would be what we call atypical GERD. So some people may just, for whatever reason, they don't feel the heartburn at all. They're, they're just astounded. I don't feel any heartburn at all, but my only GERD symptoms may be they have a persistent cough mm. or their voice is out, they're hoarse all the time or um, they actually feel food getting stuck, or some people think they are actually having a chest pain or a heart attack when in fact they're just actually, that's their GERD symptoms. Wow. So that's not so often, but what we call atypical, not common presentation of GERD. So GERD, you can have um, a dry cough from it and you can have, you could feel like something is stuck in your throat? Sure, so that's a, a, something I want to definitely clar clarify because yes, cough and hoarseness or having a sensation of something at the back of the throat is such a broad description and sure. so many things can cause that. So you, you know, you could be, a, it could be from cigarette smoking or it could be from secondhand smoke. It could be because you live in Cleveland and we have <laughs> allergies here literally from spring to fall. Sure. Uh, it could be allergic reaction, seasonal allergies, or it could be some uh, dryness of the, uh, whether you have, you know, scleroderma or some kind of autoimmune disorder that dries out your mu uh, mucosa. It could be an asthma can present with those things too. But one of uh, the possibilities of that it can be atypical or uncommon presentation of GERD. Okay, so what you were saying right now, the symptoms was for more of a cough, correct? Right. That's what you're saying, what, what could have caused it. What causes GERD? So what causes GERD is many different things. So either A, your stomach overproduces the acid and there's so much acid in the stomach that it has no other option but to splash upward and out of the stomach and up into the esophagus. So mm -hmm. that could be one. Another could be that... Um, there's a door that separates the end of the esophagus to the stomach, what we call lower esophageal sphincter. Mm -hmm. And your lower esophageal sphincter may be malfunctioning or too weak. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't shut tightly, it's almost like gaping open all the time. And so it allows at stomach acid to reflux up to the esophagus too frequently uh, or too many times. Are there dietary restrictions for people with GERD? So the first step would be, our recommendation would be dietary restrictions. So that would be just kind of common sense things. No, no excessive alcohol. A smoking lowers the muscle tone of the lower esophageal sphincter. So we say no smoking, uh, avoid excessive alcohol, mm -hmm. avoid spicy foods, because um, that can definitely make uh, your heartburn symptoms worse. Uh, we recommend avoiding large, fried, greasy meals because those hard... Um, fatty meals are, uh, are difficult to digest, so they stay in the stomach longer. So if you have this solid meat meal in your stomach, mm -hmm. then it makes the gastric acid rise at the I top. So um, that's why simpler foods that are easier to process uh, tend to help with people who suffer from GERD. How about something like... Uh, like uh, like citrus or like uh, tomatoes. Right, right. So that, that's a good point. Um, a lot of specific foods are triggers for people who suffer from GERD. So a lot of times people say anything that has tomatoes or tomato paste or pizza sauce. Um, a lot of people have different 
triggers. So sure. some people, it may be tomato paste or, or citrusy, like um, grape juice or apple or orange juice. Sure. But others may have, uh, you know, they may have their trigger may be Mexican food or yeah. another person may be Chinese food. Uh, some uh, another person may be Italian food. So it kind of varies from people to people because sure. your trigger may be a little bit different than your neighbors. All right. And uh, treatments? Treatment? kind of depends on the severity of your symptoms. So okay. if it's mild, you could just take Tums or Pepto-Bismol or okay. Maalox. Uh, if it's really mild and short-lived, then you can take those and just treat as needed. If it's severe or more persistent, meaning you have it every single day, yeah, uh, and now you're almost having like a panic attack because you're like, if I eat that, I'm going to be paying for it for the next two, three hours, right. um, then you can think about taking medication for it. So the first line, the lowest line, would be what we call H2 blockers. Um, uh, so that would be over-the-counter Tagamet, Pepsid, okay. uh, Zantac. You can buy those over-the-counter. You can take them t twice a day as needed. Mm -hmm. But again, those are the first-line therapies. Now, if you have a bigger fire to put out, then that may not be potent enough for you. So then you can also, now they're over the counter called the PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. So they're much more powerful. So that would be the Prilosec, Prevacid, Asifex, um, Nexium. You can buy those over the counter as well. Oh, okay. Um, if those don't have enough, a lot of people, patients say, hey, that helps, but it doesn't last me long enough. Well, then you can go to, you see a doctor and get a prescription, prescription. strength. Okay. Um, so it's a higher dose. So it'll last longer. Um, Good. All right. And then peptic ulcers. Why do the, first of all, what are they? I'm guessing there's some kind of ulcer, yes. but where are they located and why do they occur? So peptic ulcer means any uh, ulceration of the breakdown in the mucosal lining where you actually get uh, an ulcer develop. And that could be anywhere between the stomach, the duodenal bulb, and the duodenum. Mm -hmm. um, before the early 80s, peptic ulcer disease was pretty prevalent and pretty severe. People would actually have stomach perforations. Wow. They would have to come in the emergency room and they would have to have surgery. And the surgeons would do what we call wedge resection, like almost like a pizza wedge. And then they tie the two healthy lines together mm -hmm. to cut the ulcers out because they just, we were unable to heal them. But since the uh, invention of acid-reducing medications like the Nexium, Prolysec, yeah. Omiprazole, uh, Protonix, Pentaprazole. You know, there's a, a slew of brand name variations, but they're all proton pump inhibitors. Mm -hmm. They're extremely effective. So uh -huh. they decrease the acid production. And I mean decrease. They don't stop the acid production. They just decrease it so that you don't have a pathologic amount. Okay. So that you allow that ulceration or that break in the mucosa, allow it some time to heal. Okay. Now, is H. pylori, that bacteria, is that related to peptic ulcers? Yes, yes. So helicobacter pylori is a bacteria um, it can complicate a peptic ulcer disease because okay. what it does is the bacteria infection actually breaks down the mucosa. So you can develop, you're at higher risk for developing peptic ulcer disease, and you're at higher risk for that peptic ulcer disease to penetrate bigger. So mm. it can penetrate down to a point where it roads through an artery, and you can present to the emergency room with an upper GI bleeding from an arterial source, or it could be a slow leak where you you see black, you, you, know, you see blood in your stool, and you um, present with anemia. Oh, wow. So yeah. when you say upper, when you say bleeding, it is all coming out when you're in the restroom? 
Right. So cough it up. Right. So your intestinal tract is a closed circuit. It's a closed plumbing system. There's only two openings, mouth and anus. So if you're bleeding in your stomach, if you bleed a lot, that blood will make you nauseous and most people will vomit up blood called hematemesis. So you're vomiting up blood. If you're bleeding a little bit, kind of like a faucet where you have that little drip, um, then it's not enough to make you nauseous. So you may not vomit it up. So if you're not vomiting it up, Mm. the only other route is to go down. So eventually you'll see it in the stool. If you're having bleeding from the upper tract, once it gets hit with hydrochloric acid, bile, and digestive enzymes, it gets digested through the digestive tract. So by the time it comes out in your stool, it'll present as black color. So it'll look coffee grounds or tar or asphalt kind of looking. It's sticky. It's black. It's very hard to flush. So people have to flush a couple of times because it likes to stick to the side of the bowl. Those are concerns that you might be having an upper GI bleed. Okay. And so those you really want to get that checked out and and corrected so that you don't have to get a blood transfusion or whatnot. Yeah, wow, all right. So uh, any dietary restrictions for um, people with peptic ulcers? Um, Dietary, the food in itself doesn't cause um, the peptic ulcer disease. Mm -hmm. Usually the number one cause of peptic ulcer disease is usually stress, whether it was you're in the intensive care unit, you're intubated, you're on a ventilator, that kind of bodily stress, decreased blood flow, um, puts you at risk of vulnerability from mucosal breakdown. If you're on high dose steroids or NSAIDs, um, Motrin, um, anti-inflammatory medications that kind of decrease your uh, mucosal buildup or integrity, puts you at risk for uh, peptic ulcer disease. As you had mentioned, the H. pylori, that's a bacterial infection that kind of compromises the integrity of your mucosal lining sure. that can accelerate the peptic ulcer disease so uh, developing. what happens to the ulcer if it's left untreated? Does it get larger or does it get more complicated? Can this become a surgery, just like you said? So you know, it depends on the patient. Most of the time, since the advent of proton pump inhibitors, mm-hmm. um, most of the ulcers, almost all of them, gets fully erratic or resolved and healed. Uh, with just taking the medication for 12 to 24 weeks, depending on mm. your ability to heal. People, you know, if you skid your knee, people heal at a different rate. So sure. some people take a little bit longer. Some people may ne- need an extra 12-week course uh, the, of the medication to completely heal. Um, rarely, it, it's not uh, responding to peptic ulcer. Uh, it's not responding to the proton pump inhibitors. And that may be because they have a cardiac condition and they can't, get off of certain medication that puts them at risk. And, you know, the high-dose aspirins or um, the clopidogrel, those antiplatelet medications that put you at a little bit higher risk for uh, pe- peptic ulcer disease. So if they can't come off of these other agents that uh, increase their risk of peptic ulcer disease, then uh, in a very few rare situations, they may still need to have surgery to have that heal. But that's really very, very rare in yeah. this day of PPI v- availability. So I know you talked about stress, and that was actually one of my questions. What I want to ask you, so for prevention measures, lower your stress that will fix, not cure, but maybe the symptoms for ulcers? So it depends on the person. So Mm -hmm. some people, if they're under stress, um, you know, whether it's family stress, work stress, or financial stress, they're 
stomach, there's little cells in, called in the stomach called parietal cells. So they mm -hmm. work in overdrive and they start making a lot of hydrochloric acid. So then they get themselves in trouble because they have too much acid. Now, other people, stress may not excite their parietal cells and their acid production may be the same. So it's really hard to say that stress causes everyone to have yeah. um, this issue. It just affects some people and in, and in others, it doesn't. Um, when we also talk about stress, we don't really mean just the stress as we know it. We also mean physical stress. So if they're mm. on chemotherapy or they're on prednisone because they've got rheumatoid arthritis or they've got autoimmune you know, liver disease or right. some other medical stress that puts a stress on their physical being, that can actually increase their risk of uh, peptic ulcer disease as well. Okay, that's a good point. Okay, so um, what does it feel like? if Because you said they could show up in different places. Is it just sure. like a really painful... What? <laughs> so, you know, human beings are amazing. They have such wide variability and wide presentations. I've had patients that had the most notable ulcer that you would think, oh, it's so big. I can't, it's so impressive. Yeah. Um, but they may say, I don't have any symptoms at all. They'll, they'll swear up and down they have no pain, they have no issues, and the only reason they came is because a primary care doctor insisted that they see a GI doc wow. because on a routine health physical their blood count was lower. They have anemia. And so they, sometimes they come all disgruntled because they're like, I have no symptoms. I don't know why I'm here. My primary care doctor is just adamant and insistent that I see you, um, but I have no symptoms. I have no pain. And you really almost have to talk them into, hey, listen, I understand that, but your blood count's all been normal all this time, but all of a sudden, your blood count's low. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we have to kind of figure out why is it low? You must be losing blood somewhere. And so that's when we may have to do an upper endoscopy to take yeah. a look. And we can see uh, impressive uh, ulcerations and, and that may or may not be bleeding at the time of the endoscopy. But we can, ex you know, show that to them. And then we also have a, the other spectrum of yes. presentation <laughs> where they have just a little bit of irritation or just a little bit of um, acid uh, inflammation, but they have, you know, 20 out of 10 symptoms. Yeah, so it's yeah. hard to connect the severity of the ulcer or reflux with the symptoms that they have. Kind of like, for example, people that have a heart attack, you know, most of the time you're supposed to have chest pain, right. crushing chest pains, like elephants sitting on your chest. But other times there are many people who have absolutely no chest pain at mm -hmm. all, and they yeah. have completely unaware that they're having a heart attack. Yeah. And then other people come and say, all I had was left arm tingling or neck pain. Now, no one has a heart in their neck or their arm, yeah. but they that's the only area that they felt They're feeling it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's a referred pain. Likewise, for peptic ulcer disease, some people could have the classic boring, they feel like somebody's being stabbed with mm. a hot iron. Wow. Um, they can say, you know, it's boring pain located right here. Well, that, they're really helping us out. Yeah. That's like right out of a textbook. <laughs> and you're like, oh, you got a peptic ulcer yeah, disease. Yeah, we got this. But then some people will say, you know, I, like that gentleman that I saw, he had no symptoms. He says, I feel like a million bucks. I don't even know why I'm here. Wow. I'm so mad at my doctor for making me come. And well, not so mad, but just a little yeah. perturbed that they sure. have to do this. But, you know, they had a significant ulcer disease. So I wonder this. Could it be high pain tolerance or could it be someone that's maybe used to the pain yeah. for so long and they thought this was normal? Do you think that has anything to do with you that? Know, I've had people that come and say, you know what? I have the highest pain threshold that you can imagine. I did X, Y, and Z with no anesthesia. <laughs> but, you know, that may be true, but our pain receptors 
are not uniform throughout our entire body. So it would be like, you know, think of the most burliest guy who have, you know, they can do anything and they have no pain, but maybe they have teeth sensitivity. (laughs) They can't bite into an ice cream, right? They'll be like, oh, that's intense pain. So our level of pain sensation and perception is not uniform. So I don't want the patient to think, oh, you, you know, just because I can endure X, Y, and Z type of pain that I shouldn't, I may not feel this because that may or may not be the uh, the case. Very well said. Thank you. Okay, so gallstones. First of all, is that considered upper GI? Yes. Okay, yes. I just wanted to make sure. So what are those little stones made up of? So those stones are very common. Um, majority of the time, about 75% of the time, they're made out of cholesterol stones. Those okay. are the most common. Um, about less, about 20% um, of that next category is what we call pigmented stones. They're called black stones. And so they have more of a bile pigment and some blood. And that's why Mm. it turns, it looks black stones. And then Mm. the smallest category, maybe 5% is what we call uh, the brown stones. And those are from uh, parasitic infections mixed with blood. So there's three types of stones. Now in a, that would be in the U S in a third world country, that ratio will be very different. But in the U S a land of plenty, majority of our uh, stones are more cholesterol Cholesterol. based and not parasitic based. So if someone gets gallstones, um, is that, does that mean that they have high cholesterol? Not necessarily. Okay. Yeah. No. So right. the gallbladder is a very small organ that's yeah. in our tucked away under our right rib cage in our in our liver. Uh, it's almost like a balloon that you see. So it decompresses and it can expand and mm. decompresses. It's a small storage unit that stores bile, mm-hmm. so that when we eat a fatty, greasy meal, that bile gets dumped quickly and it's able to emulsify the fat content of our food. So we yeah. don't all have fat-induced diarrhea. So wow. it's very helpful. Um, but what happens is if you, the cholesterol precipitates out and starts accumulating in that little gallbladder sac, then you can develop stones. So that doesn't mean that you, you have high cholesterol in your body necessarily. Right. Right. It just right. means in that little gallbladder sac. And fun fact, removal of the gallbladder is one of the most common U.S. surgeries. I yes. didn't know that until I read yes. that. That's very interesting. That and epidectomy. <laughs> <laughs> so symptoms of gallbladder, a lot of pain on your right side. Could there be any other symptoms that um, so are not natural? So a textbook presentation would be right upper quadrant area where yeah. your right rib cage kind of ends. Okay. And typically textbook presentation would be after a, a fatty, greasy meal. You start having pain about 15 minutes later. It may last about an hour or two. It's colicky, meaning it comes in waves. Mm. It may, And generally located uh, right upper quadrant, maybe the middle area. But generally it stays in that locality. It doesn't spread anywhere. Okay. Sometimes it can spread, you know, you can get referred pain to the right shoulder. Okay. Um, but for the most part, it stays in the right upper quadrant area. Uh, about 15 to 20 minutes after a meal lasts about one to two hours. Okay. All right, and uh, jumping on to lactose intolerance. Okay. Um, a lot of people have that, but let's talk about the textbook definition and what is actually happening in our bodies. So lactose intolerance means um, most of us have an enzyme called lactase, mm-hmm. and it helps digest the sugar in the milk called lactose. Okay. Um, most of the population have lactase that's sufficient. We don't really suffer from it. However, there are certain 
cultural groups that are genetically have low lactase level, like mm -hmm. Asians and Hispanics, mm -hmm. that's one. Um, but that being said, um, in the general population, as we get older, you may lose a little bit of lactase um, uh, ability. Okay. So even if you were completely able to have milk when you were young, you might find as you get older, you may be less tolerant of the uh, lactose load. And sometimes it has to do with the amount. So some people can have a little cup of ice cream, yeah. but if they have two, they're in trouble. Right. So that right. means their lactase level is still present, but they don't have a whole lot of it. So okay. And it changes with age. It could definitely change it can with decrease. age. It can decrease okay. with age. But okay. some people are able to maintain their lactase activity throughout their whole life. All right. And the symptoms of that... Uh, constipation or diarrhea or both? Well, so the textbook presentation <laughs> is after a large lactose ingestion with our dairy, so milk, yeah. um, yogurt, uh, cheese, any sure. dairy product. Within 20 minutes or so, you get excessive bloating, mm. um, abdominal cramping, and most of the time it's supposed to present with diarrhea it because is. you're unable to digest the sugar of the dairy product, the lactose. Mm -hmm. So you have what we call osmotic diarrhea because you're not able to digest it so it just gets it's expelled right out you. of your body so okay. you'll get a, a good bowel clean out yeah <laughs> so can you test for this if you feel like uh, you can there's a breath test um breath test. that you any doctor can order for you and you mm -hmm. go and you there's a breath lab facilities and um they make you drink a liquid that's just lactose. Ooh. And then 10 to 15, 20 minutes later, you blow into a bag and they're measuring the hydrogen oh. content of your, uh, of just to see if you're malabsorbing. You're now, to. that being said, that's very scientific and nice, but you could really do those at home. Um, you could drink eight ounces of milk. And, and if you have you no symptoms 20 minutes later, then you're good. <laughs> if you have abrupt symptoms within 15 to 20 minutes, then you have your answer and you could just saved yourself a very that. expensive test. <laughs> okay, that's very good to know. All right. All right, so um, swallowing disorders, uh, real fast. I mean, it seems like there are many. Yeah, so sure. what constitutes a swallowing disorder? So swallowing disorder is um, pretty complicated. So mm -hmm. it can encompass anything from difficulty of taking the food in the mouth and transferring it down to the stomach. The swallowing Right. Okay. So none of us really think about it because it's done out of reflex, yeah. natural reflex. But there's a lot of mechanical steps that take place without our knowledge, kind of like our heart beats all the time. Right. And we don't even think twice about it. Swallowing is the same thing. It really starts from the time you looked at your food and you're thinking about eating it. So then your mouth gets preparation started by making right. saliva, making your mouth moist, your tongue's getting ready. Um, and then when you kind of take it into the mouth, there's that accepting phase where your lips are involved, your tongue is involved, your saliva is involved. It's got to accept Going. the food into the mm -hmm. stump, into the, your mouth. And then the second phase is that transference phase where the, the back of the tongue and the palate um, is all involved in chewing the food and transferring it to the back of the throat. Now at the back of the throat, there's Two, two pipes. You have the windpipe and the food yeah. pipe. So when swallowing, without our consciously thinking, our air pipe or windpipe is closed, and then the food pipe is open. Mm. So then the food gets transferred to the food pipe. And then you have the esophageal phase, and then it goes to the stomach. Mm. Now, many things can go wrong in yeah. those steps. So most common would be if you had a, a, severe, uh, a stroke, okay. a ischemic stroke, or you have some neurologic muscular dysfunction mm -hmm. where that process is no longer 
properly executed without your uh, conscious sedation. So what can happen is you can chew and chew and chew, but they can't transfer. Wow. Or you can chew and chew and chew and transfer, but then that flap goes to the wrong pipe, so you're actually aspirating food to the windpipe. Um, Then the last phase is it can actually get transferred successfully to the food pipe, but then your esophagus isn't efficient or it's pathologic and it's unable to shove it all the way down to the stomach. So So that sounds like a very difficult uh, disorder to to live with. What are the treatments for something like that? Well, that varies. It depends on what the cause is. If it was due to a a cerebrovascular accident, like a stroke, Mm -hmm. then the way is to go with a physical therapist and try to retrain how to um, swallow swallow and recruit extra other muscles to help for the muscle that's we've lost. So um, they can try to retrain how to swallow or use different techniques to augment the function you've lost. Yeah, so if yeah. it's a CVA related, you can do physical therapy uh, or not whatnot. If it's a um, infiltrative process, meaning neurological issues, whether you have MS or Guillain-Barre or you have ALS, you know, those are, di- it, it needs to have a neurologic um, issue. Approach yeah. to it. Because I'm thinking you can't really take a pill, right? Right, that's correct. That's I, that would be so nice. I know, right? That's what I'm yeah, like, and then for our, our part is in the esophagus, if you've developed um, scar tissue, what we call Schatzky's ring mm-hmm. or stricture or mass, um, then depending on what the if it's a Schatzky's hearing, we can just cut it out and take care of it mm-hmm. for you. Or we, if it's a structural thing, we can dilate it for you. If it's a mass, as long you know, as long as it's small enough, we're able to remove it for you. Okay. If it's you know cancer, then it's a different story whether right. it, whether it's resectable or not resectable. Okay. So um, let's see now. Thinking about something like burping okay. or belching. Yes. Could it be if excessive? Is that a disorder? It is a disorder. Yeah, let's so talk about that. That's, that's a fun topic because yeah. also the etiology of that is, is very wide. Yeah. It could be actually anxiety uh, presentation. A lot of people, when they're very anxious, they don't realize they're doing this, but they have something called aerophasia. They're swallowing the air. Uh, and they have no idea that they're doing it. They've actually done a study where they put these people in on a radio labeled air and they can see it go in and they swallow it and they go to the stomach and it comes back out. Wow. So that's called aerophasia. So it could be a manifestation of an anxiety disorder. Uh, another could be that you actually have ac- excessive gastric acid and the ga- gastric acid causes a lot that's of... It's causing the belching. Yeah, the excessive buildup build up of the air and your lower esophageal sphincter is weak so it doesn't close it. So instead of the gas go- air going down, it's oh, coming yeah. back up. So I that see. could be a, a presentation of acid reflux disease. Uh, Another thing would be, unfortunately, neoplastic. If you are having a cancerous issue process of the lower esophageal sphincter and it can't close, then it's just a freeway going in and out. So um, those are many different presentations. Um, Now, one last question for you, and this is probably a hard one because that's the one that I struggle with, (laughs) with my kids or when someone tells me I have abdominal pain. Man, that is hard yeah. to pinpoint what could be the issue. Um, right. You know, like, how do you, how do you tell if, um, you know, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not the patient, but if I am a patient and I'm 
feeling some kind of pain. How do I know where that pain is coming from? We have so many organs in our That's upper right. GI. So the best thing is to actually lay them down. You want to lay them down because when you're sitting, everything's kind of scrunched up. And so oh. it's like all on top of each other. Okay. I always tell patients your abdominal cavity is kind of like a suitcase. So, you know, you, you on top up. of each other. Yeah. That's exactly right. So the best way to best locate or localize is you lay them down. What mm. that does is it stretches everything out. So you have them point with one finger where, where in your abdomen. Because sometimes people say I have stomach pains and when I ask them to point they're like pointing down here and yeah. I'm like that's your bladder that's yeah. not your stomach so your stomach's all the way up here so they mean abdomen so those words stomach and abdomen gets interchanged okay so the best scenario is you lay them down ask them with one finger um, where the location is so yeah. that helps um, limit your differential so yeah. clearly are they pointing to your liver or are they pointing to their stomach or are they pointing to their bladder right, right. Um, or they're pointing to your appendix or you know their spleen so the location kind of can help you narrow down, down the possibilities okay so. and then google it <laughs> no don't google it don't google i'll just it. terrify you <laughs> call your local friendly primary care doctor or a uh, neighbor who might have some medical yeah, contact right right now are there any other um upper gi issues that are common that we didn't talk about oh yeah i mean there's a lot i know there's, there's a, a whole lot. lot yeah so right now there's a lot of um whether it's a dietary thing there's like eoe eosinophilic esophageal esophagitis that's more of a allergic process wow. um, that affects your esophagus. Um, you had mentioned the H. pylori. That's a bacterial infection. Yeah. A lot of people are popping anti-inflammatories because of muscle aches because they're training for a marathon or yeah. whatnot or weightlifting. So you can have peptic ulcer disease. There's other things that are not as common, but those that we look for, um, you know, like like carcinoid or yeah. you know, gastric cancers. We don't want those, but, you know, we have to make sure that we're on the lookout for those things. Sure. Sure. And then inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease, can sure. affect anywhere in the intestinal tract. Um, it's so it not could just, be upper, not right, just lower. It, it's not just limited to the colon. So Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disorder, it's not contagious, um, but it can attack anywhere in the intestinal sure. tract. Sure. And another um, one is something called gastroparesis. Um, what that is is the motility of the stomach is greatly slowed. So when you consume a meal, uh, depending on the meal, there is a stomach emptying time. When that stomach emptying time is greatly delayed, uh, a condition called gastroparesis uh, is uh, diagnosed. And what that does is patients ate a meal maybe 16 hours ago, but it just sits there. So it mm -hmm. causes a lot of discomfort, a lot of pressure, lack of appetite. They're, they haven't eaten anything for 16 hours, but they're still full. Feeling so, so is it lack of digestion then? Is that a part of it? Usually there's different causes. So the most common um, cause or etiology for gastroparesis is diabetes. Mm. So the, high the long periods of high sugars causes neurologic changes of, of the, mo um, the motor neurons in the stomach uh, muscle wall. Mm -hmm. So it just is sluggish. It just doesn't move. It doesn't recognize the food is there and it's not grinding it. It's not pushing it out of the stomach into the small bowel so that the, intest the digestive tract can start working. So that's the number one cause. But there's other um, causes for gastroparesis. The second most common is medication side effect. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of patients are on pain medicine because they had a hip surgery or knee surgery um, or some orthopedic surgery that's extremely painful, and they get put on uh, pain medication in a form of narcotics, and all of those causes delay in gastric emptying time, but you won't feel it because it's a pain medicine. You can't feel 
pain, you're not going to feel that your stomach's not moving right. either. Right. Um, there's other, even less common causes of gastroparesis are unfortunately infiltrative disorders, whether it's a linus plastica, it's a form of gastric cancer, mm -hmm. or um, you know, a form of uh, what we call malt lymphomas, or it, it, it's, a, it's a cancer of the stomach lining, but it's a form of a, a form of neoplastic changes that causes the stomach not to function. So there are different causes, but most commonly being uh, gastroparesis, being diabetes. Sure. Um, is H. pylori painful? H. pylori in itself should not be painful. Should not be yeah. painful. Yeah. So, okay. um, but once you have an ulcer, the patient may or may not be aware of the symptoms. So they may or may not have that boring pain. Yeah. <laughs> so if I'm having pain um, in my abdomen somewhere, the best way to tell if it's an ulcer, besides your questioning me, is what? Like an EGD? Yeah. Okay. It really, to get it, if to you get wanted a definitive answer, it would be an upper endoscopy because mm -hmm. what that would do is you'd come in on an empty stomach. Uh, we would just give you a little sedation so that you're a little sleepy. And while yeah. you're sleepy, we slide the scope over your tongue, down the food pipe, into the stomach. And, you know, that lens is almost like a low-level microscope. One millimeter lesion is just really greatly magnified so we can see quite a bit and we can look for ulcers, polyps, yeah. anything that's abnormal. And I want to ask you about the endoscopy, just because it's the first thing that comes to my mind, yeah. and maybe some of our listeners, but that endoscopy going down your throat, even if you are a little bit on twilight, you know... Yeah. Very well tolerated. It is? It's very you nerve. There's no gag reflex. There's a, a lot of anxiety associated with it, but it's a very me. safe procedure. They've been doing it for many, many decades. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's really a five-minute procedure. And for those of us that do it on a daily basis, your safety and comfort are first priority. Right. Um, so you get an IV in your arm. We do give you what we call twilight sedation. Yeah. Most of the patients won't remember what happened, but it's only five minutes. But we make sure you have enough an uh, anesthesia that you're Comfortable, you're comfortable and you're not okay. anxious okay. and and it, the scope is really smaller than any bite-sized meal that we have and we just and it's very flexible yeah with a light and a camera and so we just kind of go slide it over the tongue while you're sleeping <laughs> go down the food pipe and take a very careful look around to make yeah. sure that there's nothing concerning uh on on in the in the works very, very informative. Thank you so much sure. for being here today, Love Doctor. being here. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. And thank you for our listeners and viewers for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To listen to more of our Health Essentials podcast from our Cleveland Clinic experts, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash H-E podcast, or you can su subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And for more information on Cleveland Clinic's Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash digestive, or to make an appointment you can call 216-444-7000. And for more health tips, news, and information, make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Cleveland Clinic, just one word. Thank you. We'll see you again next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.